Who do you think Rick Ross was speaking to when he said, fuck a blog dog, because one day we gon' meet? I feel like he was talking to one of us. Me, SK, Mecca, Shake, whatever the case is. This is low-key. From the blog, you heard that new. I feel like our voices kind of infiltrated their creative mindset. They were worried about us and what we thought about them. They were worried about what we were going to say about their records. They were worried about what we were going to say about their albums. And it became to a point where it was like, yo, fuck it, fuck a blog. Like, we're going to meet someday. People love to wax nostalgic about the early days of blogging, when everyone was out for themselves and every post featuring leaked music felt like life and death. Reminiscing, people assigned cowboy imagery to those times. A bunch of outlaws, no rules, swinging doors and smashing bottles. But once everyone stopped aiming at each other and established some order, well, that's when the real fun began. Where it's the real. And this is episode four. We need a board. Within days of each other in June 2006, the then-retired rapper and current Def Jam president Jay-Z made visits with two worldwide figures. First, Microsoft founder and philanthropist Bill Gates, and then Angie Martinez, whose afternoon show was a centerpiece to New York's number one rated radio station, Hot 97. While there, Jay did something that earned global attention. He announced that he'd be boycotting Cristal Champagne over its managing director's racist remarks. Cristal is over, he said. They'd no longer stock the drinks at any of Jay's 4040 clubs. What he didn't mention was where he'd gotten the idea. A viral post by a guy who could recite every Jay-Z lyric but knew better than to even dream about politicking with him. SK. After Jay and Angie wrapped up the interview and got off air, they shared some laughs with Hot 97's news director, a five foot two Korean-American journalist by the name of Minya Oh, or as her listeners knew her, Miss Info. I have a very different origin story than a lot of bloggers because I came from the inside, but I came from the inside in sort of like where the medium or where the media was that was evolving or evolving or disappearing. Growing up in Chicago, Minya's parents had wanted her to take competitive piano lessons, but she wasn't that girl. No, she was the type to have her prom night ruined by her mid-level gang member boyfriend going to jail. The type to buy her first motorcycle and ride it 45 miles home by herself. In the 90s, she'd moved to New York to go to Columbia University, where, instead of the dorms, she'd spend her time at The Source magazine. Her editors loved her work ethic and deep appreciation for all things hip-hop, and she was rewarded. Selected to review the most anticipated East Coast album at the time, the debut of a 20-year-old from Queens named Nas. She wrote honestly and cleverly of Nas's poetry, giving Illmatic the magazine's most rare distinction, five mics out of five. Minya wrote the review under the pseudonym Shorty, partly to shield herself from any racial judgment she might have faced from strangers. To this day, it's one of hip-hop journalism's most important moments. Her career took her to Vibe magazine, then MTV News, and eventually to Hot 97, where she became Miss Info, diligently reporting the news twice a day. But more and more, Info felt like she was stuck in a box. When I got to Hot 97, the immediacy of being on the air being able to speak to 2 million people, let's say, at peak high traffic, but then not being able to continue that conversation beyond your 
30 seconds, 60 seconds, two minutes was frustrating, especially when you're talking about things that were so visual. At her day job, executives wouldn't let her share her MySpace handle for fear of the listenership leaving radio behind. But she felt the internet could be additive. She imagined starting her site as a one-stop reference location, featuring photos, audio, and links to video that provided more context to the stories she was discussing on air. If I was getting on the phone with 50 Cent and I could only play 30 seconds on the air, then I wanted a place where I could just dump the entire audio. I was always looking for the next way to feed that beast both within myself and for other people who I felt like were just like me that always just wanted to know even more detail, wanted to know the latest update. And so that was the web. There was a community online that she would regularly cite in her segments. Websites like Concrete Loop, Media Takeout, Crunk and Disorderly, and Bossip were covering celebrities white magazines wouldn't touch and getting millions of hits per month. The YBF, short for Young, Black, and Fabulous, another gossip site, had traffic on the level of Perez Hilton. They all operated at the intersection of reality TV and actual reality. Jim Jones got roasted for how he dressed, the BET award shows were covered like a royal wedding, and fringe celebrities like Usher's then-fiancé Tamika Foster or the basketball player Booby Gibson were turned into paparazzi targets. This corner of the internet further pushed black celebrity culture into the mainstream. White media followed suit and soon after opened up their coverage to people like Tracy Ellis Ross and Sanaa Lathan. Misinfo.tv was started in March of 2007. The character of Misinfo, the reluctant media personality who could also pose in King Magazine, had expectations and ratings to live up to. Her blog would offer a fuller picture, funny, nerdy, and self-reflective, the food she liked, and the nights she hated. But beta testing was not in the cards. Within a week of the blog's existence, Info went viral. She broke the story that the rapper Tony Yeo slapped up the 14-year-old son of a rival's manager, and the internet could not get enough. Where today there are countless places to find the same content, InfoSite was a lighthouse in the dark. And because she was such a noob, she was not ready for the attention, good or bad. Ostensibly, I'd skipped the line, which had caused like a lot of resentment, in all honesty. But I came in that way because I had already done so many years in hip hop journalism. I didn't know how to post photos the right way. And I remember like really clearly, I just like straight out asked, hey, guys, I need help. Can someone teach me how to put photos so that they're all in a line like I see on such and such blog? And I learned really quickly after making some pretty lazy mistakes. I somehow learned how to right click on a photo and take the photo. Okay, so then I post the photo on my blog. People would come into my comments and say, why didn't you hyperlink or why didn't you link or why didn't you credit? Across the internet, rules were fluid and tempers were hot. Minya was sloppy and had missed crucial steps. She may have been accomplished elsewhere, but she didn't understand this audience her new neighbors had little patience for pure intentions. She took the hits, even from other bloggers she admired from afar, and learned that this was a new lane. So she'd get back up on the bike, or more accurately, the motorcycle. Shorty, Miss Info, Murder Minya, was here to ride with the big boys. Where there were just 23 blogs in 1999, by 2006, there were nearly 50 million more with 5,000 new ones every hour. 
This meant a lot more voices and a lot more representation. In Nashville, Tennessee, there was a skinny, bespectacled high school English teacher who enjoyed listening to jazz and could quote entire Shakespeare plays, but who also spent a lot of time on the rap and sneaker-obsessed forums of Nike Talk. Online, he went by the name John Gotti. You know, I'm saying all this wild shit. And then I'm going into work the next morning and it's a totally different space. So I had to keep those two worlds separate. Gotti started off passing links to leaked records and 100-word reviews through an email group for friends and coworkers. And one of them was like, yo, you should start a blog. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck is a blog? He named this new idea the smoking section, trying to evoke the imagery of Miles Davis at a club night in the 1960s. Up in Chicago, Andrew Barber was bored, working as an assistant for an executive at the cable channel FX. With so much downtime, he'd make the rounds of every hip-hop-related blog he could find. And on the train ride home, while other commuters were reading the business section of the Sun-Times, Andrew studied printouts from sites that would get blocked at work, like Cocaine Blunts or Byron Crawford. What Andrew couldn't understand was why Chicago, a top-tier market, was not getting national attention beyond the big four, Kanye, Lupe, Common, and Twista. Someone needed to shine a light on talents like Bump J or GLC or the Cool Kids, whose song Black Mags showcased an impossibly fun yet bare-bones production that stood out from anything else, not only in Chicago, but across the blogosphere. These people should be getting coverage, and they weren't. It was just kind of like a perfect storm. I was reading the blogs, and then there was this whole thing happening in Chicago, and I'm like, what if I just start writing about it, covering it? Because I'm going to these shows, like I'm going to these cool kids events at these like little clubs or nightclubs or lounges, and these guys would have a line down the street. And then some guy that was on every blog that was like the hot, so-called hot new rapper, they'd have a show at the House of Blues or something, and the, and the place would be half full. In a nod to the famous expressway around Chicago's Lake Michigan, Andrew named his website Fakeshore Drive. Henry Adasso grew up in Nigeria, drinking up American pop culture from Top 40 Radio, music videos on MTV, and Vibe magazine. He'd hand-create newsletters and force his high school friends to read them. After settling down in Houston, Texas, he adopted the handle Rizzo and created an online message board. The humble hope was to create a worldwide community that would discuss and debate the latest releases. He'd go on to turn that destination into a blog, calling it TheWrapUp.net. Not to be confused with WrapUp.com or WrapUp Magazine or WrapUp TV or so many others who are thinking along the same lines. I used to just sit on GoDaddy and like hit refresh all the time to see if it will come up available. <laughs> just refresh, refresh, and it never happened. I just kind of accepted it that we were going to be a .NET and we were just going to work hard enough to make sure that people remembered. If we're resonating, then there wouldn't be any problems. Now, occasionally I would get emails from people trying to reach a different wrap-up and then I would always have to correct them. So that was fun. Nashville is a country music town. Unlike writers in media centers like New York, L.A., or Atlanta, John Gotti from the smoking section couldn't rely on artists, managers, or record labels hitting him for interviews or to leak a project. He knew nobody. He had no audience. So they'd never win through access. Instead, they'd do what others did not, focus on long-form writing with a more literary approach. They'd be brutal but respectful. Hopefully the word would spread. 
Gotti and his team wanted the site to be better than any magazine. We knew with the pens that we were able to assemble, we knew we could outright anybody. Well, not everybody, but the majority of us either had some type of English background, some type of journalism background, some type of mass comms background. So it was like we knew our way around words. And like even the ones who didn't know their way around words, me being a teacher, I knew how to guide and help them. David Dennis was one of the lead writers at the smoking section. Gotti's from Tennessee, right? But there wasn't a lot of like Southern voices there. And I wasn't a lot of, to me, wasn't a lot of Southern voices in what I was reading in XXL on the source, right? And especially this was like ringtone era, snap music era, where nobody wanted to hear that shit. Everything that was coming out of the South was trash to everybody else. So to me, it was like, all right, I can write about this music in a way that is different from what people are thinking about the music. For Andrew, any access he got would be fought for and won in real life. And his product was, at the time, not an easy sell. What I did was I printed up a stack of 200 business cards or whatever. I would go to my job during the day, do blog posts here and there when I could. And then at night, I would go to music events, rap events, concerts, and I would just pass out my cards. And I remember people just laughing at me. I would show them the, the card. They'd look at the logo, the name of the company, and they'd laugh. You know, I had like my phone number, my home address. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm like, yeah, send me your music, and I'll put it up on there. Like, you want me to give you my music for free so you can put it up on a website? Are you nuts? Rizzo was putting in full-time hours on his passion project while also holding down a restaurant job and freelancing for local newspapers. He'd go to concerts on assignment and get recognition from people in the know, but Rizzo was far from gassed. He recognized that he was just one of a large number of hip-hop blogs. Hell, there were at least four others named The Wrap-Up. Everybody had access to the same music, and music was the primary way of publishing content. It was by publishing content around new music. We tried a lot of different formats to really set it apart so that when you came to the rap club, you knew you were going to get a host of different ways of looking at the culture and the music that you wouldn't get anywhere else. So we had a round table, we had Snap Judgment, which was, uh, it drops today and we're reviewing it right now. And then we had the classic reviews and, and we also had the daily content, putting out new music and putting out news. By mid-2006, the smoking section was becoming a go-to for full albums, mixtapes, Lucy's, everything. The depth in their writing had even attracted DJ Drama, who granted the operation an interview. 5,000 people were visiting every day, 300 people had joined the newsletter, and they were ready to make the jump from a basic blogspot page to a professionally designed website. Mr. Gotti's students, though, couldn't have given a shit. And I would be sitting there at work, and they would be bothering me about some paperwork, or some kid would be acting out. And I'm like, dude, you know what? I could be over here dealing with whoever the hell, this famous rapper. I could be talking to the game on the phone. Like, if you only knew. Andrew saw growth in his site's traffic, too. He felt the winds changing among the artists in the city. Chicagoans like Kid Sister and Mickey Halstead recognized the appeal of Andrew's enthusiasm, respect, and audience, and began to feed projects and interviews to Fakeshore Drive first. To balance his day job with his side gig, Andrew ran around like he was living a double life. You know, knowledge from kids in the hall and double O were super helpful. They let me interview them early on. So I was like going to the break room, like at lunch, trying to sneak and do an interview with people at that time. 
the real sea change happened when 20 unreleased Lupe Fiasco records showed up in Andrew's inbox, sent to him by Lupe's former collaborators. We're talking about someone who was not just a local hero, but on the verge of superstardom. And when Andrew posted those songs on his site, everything rocketed up. The audience numbers, the accolades from other bloggers, and attention, for better or for worse. Chuck English of The Cool Kids. Man, it's been a beautiful journey to see, just because now I believe that everybody understands the work that he's done and the flowers to give him. But when it started, Thanks for a Drive was problematic, bro. It was just like Chicago wasn't ready to see people that wasn't signed on a platform. The comment sections was motherfucking trash fire. It was a dumpster fire, like literally for the first two years. So to see how it evolved from people hating to see people up there to now being like, oh, you on because you on fake shirt. That shit was fresh. I would get calls all day, like at work. Hey, I want to drop this song right now. I'd be like, dude, I can't do anything. You give me half an hour. The same guy who passed out business cards to strangers was now getting what he asked for. While Andrew held on to the desk job at FX, he discreetly checked the hundreds of emails he was getting each day and rushing off to take Fayshore Drive calls on the low. That is, until his cover was blown. The Chicago Reader had reached out. They did like a story about me. And they did a photo shoot. Like I'd never done anything like that in my life. I didn't necessarily want people to even know who I was, really. I wanted to be more behind the scenes, but they asked me to do like a photo shoot, so I did it. And I was in like three pages of the Chicago Reader. And my boss called me into his office and closed the door. He had the paper sitting on his desk. I'm like, oh shit, I'm about to get fired. They definitely pulled up all my uh, search history and traffic and all the stuff that I've been doing. Like, I'm like, I'm about to get busted. But he loved it. He was like, oh, this is so cool. Why did you never tell me this? And then when everybody found out about it, everybody at my regular job got really weird because we would go to meetings or meet with clients and the clients wouldn't even want to talk about the work stuff. They would want to talk about Fake Short Drive. Before you knew it, the whole meeting would be about me. And I was like, I'd be trying to downplay it. I'd be sitting there with a suit on and tie, like, you know, setting up the projector. Just feeling like a total goofball. Tumabasa was managing music programming for MTV2. I reached out to Andrew Barber because all of a sudden I wanted to stay up on everything that's in Chicago and he was doing such a great job. And I remember building with him and then him telling me like he understood some TV stuff. I was like, how how do you know about traffic? Because traffic is like commercials, like scheduling commercials and stuff like that. And I remember asking and he was like, oh, I work in TV. I was like, that's my day job. I was like, what? You have a day job and you do all of this? Andrew had a day job, John Gotti had a day job, and Rizzo had a day job because all these people had day jobs. No one was making money. The internet was in this weirdly beautiful space where commercialism was not at the forefront. The expectation was that things were free, from music to the very blogging software they were using. So when it came to this 9 to 5 to 9 again, people were just happy to be part of something bigger. You know, this was not something I ever saw that I could make money doing, and I didn't do it to make money. I did it out of the love for the culture and just being involved. I saw something really cool happening, and I wanted to be involved, and it just kind of grew from there. And That's what was crazy about it. You know, I don't know if any blogs were making money at that time. Which set up an interesting dynamic. You're doing this thing that feels so good that you just give it away. You're providing a service, and in return, there's these incalculable benefits. Andrew was friends with Lupe. And the cool kids were getting him into parties. Tuma from MTV2 was calling to pick his brain. It's unreal. But there's this reality as well. Bills had to be paid. And this platform was eating up all of your time. 
there's no time to focus on an actual job when you're doing this other thing that no one seems to know how to monetize. How could you keep giving people life if you're not able to live yourself? Mecca, one of the founders of the blog, Two Dope Boys. We didn't make a dime from the website for its first three years. We didn't make any money from the website. So at that point, we were still trying to figure out our own respective lives, like how to stay afloat, how to keep our lights on, everything. I was on unemployment. And if when my unemployment ran out, I had to beg my moms to help me out. I ended up getting to New York because I applied to this random job after years of applying everywhere. And they were the only place that said you're hired. You know, I came to New York with like $53 in my pocket. You know, it's kind of hard to <laughs> kind of hard to just bounce back to California when you don't even have money for a plane ticket. I was very depressed during that time because, yeah, we're getting all these props and, yeah, we're getting all these faux accolades and everything. And I am barely keeping weight on my body. It's so hard to put the genie back in the bottle, especially when you feel you're on the cusp of something. It's not as simple as pressing pause and taking a job at a drugstore. Doing work you didn't care about would feel irresponsible. So you push on to the next day, and the day after that. SK had been at his day job, building and overseeing XXL's online properties, for almost 12 months when he took stock of just how much had changed across the board. In a year's time, he'd gone from fixing the boss's internet to being the boss of the internet. XXLMag.com, the magazine's website, was no longer an afterthought around the office. It was an industry leader. But overnight, XXL was left without its own leaders. Bfred, the original architect of XXL's digital arm, departed to help Complex Magazine create theirs. And Elliot Wilson was, in a shock to the music industry, fired as editor-in-chief after nine years. With neither side giving a reason, the internet was free to wonder and crack wise. An editor at Bossip said, Good thing Bossip will never get fired. We own our shit. SK may have owned his shit too, but XXL paid his salary. Not everyone was having the same internal struggle. After years spent ignoring the online conversation, big buildings were having a hard time keeping up. Tumabasa. Whenever I had a video premiere and, and we'd have the online rights as well because that was a whole issue to get online rights. Because remember, these bloggers, they were outsiders. They did not have to uh, stick to the rules in terms of uh, rights or honoring premieres. If I was at MTV and BET was going to premiere something as a new joint, we had to honor that because we knew that the label people had relationships. We didn't want to ruin their relationships if they had committed to doing a world premiere somewhere else. Bloggers didn't have those relational obligations. I spent three weeks trying to get that best I ever had premiere. And on Smash, premiered it 45 minutes before we did. I was crushed. I swear, I'm sure I had tears on my Blackberry. I had gone to the video shoot. I had been calling G. Roberson. Kanye directed it. I walked around, kiss his hands and shake babies. And then all of a sudden, I remember it was around 11 o'clock or something like that. And all of a sudden, it was on on Smash, like an hour before. And it was our edits, crushed. But it's a 
perfect example of what we had to go through as old guard, old media versus these new bloggers. For them, they just had to get it and maybe convert it into an MP4 or whatever format. And all of a sudden, the entire blogosphere had it before it even went live on MTV.com. These guys were getting whatever they wanted. Napster had normalized the idea of free music years ago. So from that point on, albums, mixtapes, songs, these would just be marketing tools. Labels had to make their money elsewhere by signing artists to 360 deals. These contracts, which were gaining traction in the rock and pop worlds, were ones where the label and artists would split all revenue streams. T-shirts, touring, ringtones, and yes, iTunes. So it wasn't a tough decision for the labels to work with these websites. Lock arms with the people who were delivering music most efficiently. If a video got posted online before MTV, that's an MTV problem. Staying alive meant putting music in the hands of the bloggers first, skipping them ahead of TV execs, DJs, and magazine editors. DJ Drama. Blog became the new mixtapes. I mean, they literally did. They took our spot in a lot of ways. And I don't say take our spot in a bad way. I mean, they just, instead of people going to Mix Unit or Mixtape Kings or whatever to find a new mixtape, you could go to your favorite blog site and download a new song or a new project or something like that. So that became the new um, location to, you know, to get new music. Bun B. The blogs became the new record store because it was a place where you could go and hear music early. Every single day, and sometimes two, three times a day, there'd be a song that you'd never heard of before, sometimes from a band that you were familiar with, sometimes from a band you had never heard of. But there was always going to be new music for you to experience on these blogs. The race to get exclusives was intense and around the clock. Rivalries from behind every keyboard were nasty. It was nothing to diss someone you'd never see. Taunts and comments got personal. Fuck being friendly. This was competition. It's, it's human nature, I guess, to like want to compete and prevail over others. So posting music first or getting this exclusive, that was the currency in the world we were traveling in. And the competitive nature came out of all of us. Here's low key. I got it first. I did it before you. That's why my site is called You Heard That New. That's why I'm known for having records first. This is Mikey Fresh, the consigliere at MissInfo.tv. To me, at the time, to us, that was everything. Literally, to have it up, I'm not joking. I was happy to have something up three minutes ahead of somebody. I felt like I had won this race. In hindsight, maybe we took it a little overboard, but maybe we didn't, because at the time, it did matter, you know? Like, the faster you got stuff up, the more it would be considered your quote-unquote exclusive, and you would build your name on, on the internet. Not right may not have been his sole gig, but SK was all in, all the time. He hated to lose. It ate him up when another site would post a song before him. It stung a whole lot worse, though, when someone would claim undue credit. Things could get bad in such a tiny community. Like when Shake from the West Coast powerhouse blog Two Dope Boys and SK got into a schoolyard brawl in the comments over a Lupe fiasco leak. Insults were hurled for hours. The fire fanned by onlookers who enjoyed these two heavyweights slugging it out. I did bump heads with Shake. And, you know, sometimes that's how friendships form. Like, you disagree of something. Sometimes strong-willed people express opinions loudly and in each other's faces, and that ends up bringing them together, and that's kind of what happened there. I do remember that at the end of the day, I was like, you know, I respect this kid. He stood up for himself. He didn't back down. We may have ended up agreeing. 
agreeing to disagree or whatever, but at the end of the day, we both have the same goal here. To win. Double XL was a bucket list job for SK. He worked with the most talented and creative staff. He was on the masthead of the magazine he grew up reading. With both his bosses now gone, there was a chance to climb the ladder. But similar to his time doing IT, he found himself thinking more and more outside his cubicle. The job that provided him healthcare was keeping him from the job that gave him life. He wondered what winning really meant. One evening, Eske went for a ride to clear his head. And I was driving in the car in the city, listening to Hot 97, as one does. And I hear Miss Info shouting out, not right. Info used to do her little news segment every night on the radio, and she spoke about whatever news story of the day was being discussed, and she credited me as the source. As a kid who grows up in New York, that's crazy. Yeah, it's everything. Like, you know, we grew up on Hot 97, so to hear your name on the radio like that, it's crazy. Getting mentioned on the radio, working at the magazine he'd once bought off newsstands, he was checking off boxes a young SK could only have fantasized about. But there was something new to contend with. Na Wright was outpacing his imagination. In a bit of divine timing, his old friend from XXL, Beefred, was out looking for an anchor for Complex's new network. Beefred believed that they could make a killing putting advertising on blogs, starting with Na Wright. And SK believed too. So he'd leave XXL and for the first time, commit full-time to this thing he had built and make a bet that the upstart complex media network would continue to make his ends meet. We need a board. Jay-Z made it a hot line, but SK made it a hot long-running joke on his site. Whenever anything out of pocket happened in the rap world, he would say, we need a board. There had to be a committee of people, Hove, Angie Martinez, whoever, who could give a thumbs-up sign for what was allowed in the culture and point out what wasn't. It was a fantasy, but imagine if no one would get on without this committee's approval. D. Bills, one of the not-right commenters. (laughs) We need a board. Yeah, we need a board. I remember, because SK was like a Jay-Z stand, and we did need a board. We did need people to regulate what was going on and we and we don't have one like because some of the stuff that come out i'm just like yo who did they run this by how was they able to put this out and nobody say anything or nobody you know told them like yo this is probably not a good look for you in the short time that not right was in existence sk had not only earned a little bit of an audience but a little bit of an ego too he wouldn't laugh off his position anymore he believed in it he was fully grown and ready to take aim at not just goliath every goliath sending shots at Apple, Hot 97, and the RIAA. And he wouldn't go it alone. We need a board. Across the entire internet, there were just a handful of bloggers who'd fully gained SK's respect. People who were as dedicated and as prolific as he was. There was YouHeardThatNew.com, which was run by Low Key, a boisterous Joe Budden fan from New Jersey, usually with a drink in hand. He'd gone to Howard University with visions of being a radio personality. After graduation, he devoted all his time and energy to finding and breaking new music via his website, much to his mother's confusion. She used to call me the boy in the basement because when I was working at the Double Tree Hotel, I I stayed with them and I stayed in the basement. 
and I'd be down there blogging, you know, on the computer, come up, go to work, come back down, blog till five in the morning or whatever the case was. And I was that kid, the boy in the basement. She just never understood what the fuck a blog was. She's like, are you making money from her? I'm like, no, this is just what I love to do. A regular on Box Den and other message boards, Loki had a good ear for talent and a loud mouth for opinions. And through online relationships and sheer dogginess, his website turned into a burning hot destination to hear that new. Leaks came to me from hackers, managers, artists, executives, DJs, and I would literally just put the record up. People were sending me records on the low and saying, hey, we want to test this record out, or hey, you didn't get this from me. That was the rush. Opening your email and seeing that record and knowing no one on any site has it. And I have about five minutes to do it. I'm telling you, I would be doing this shit from the front desk of a hotel when I was working at Doubletree. Guests in my face trying to check in and I'm trying to post a Beanie Siegel record or whatever the fuck the case is. <laughs> I've done it plenty of times, I'm telling y'all. DJ Clue was the exclusive guy. That's what I wanted. I wanted to drop Flexibloms all over the fucking internet. That's what I wanted to do. And I achieved it with my website. Mecca Yudo's life growing up was hectic. By his late teens, he wasn't naive enough to make plans. After high school, I was more concerned with staying out of jail. <laughs> Mecca was more than his petty criminal record, though. He recognized his own strong taste in music when friends wouldn't return the cassette tapes full of songs he put together. This sounds stupid, but my goal was to become editor-in-chief of XXL Magazine because of that movie, Brown Sugar. I had no idea what the real journalism world was like. I just thought it was everything I'd seen in that movie. I did everything I thought I was supposed to in college that would help me secure a job. I interned at magazines, small and large. I wrote for the school newspaper, wrote for a couple fledgling hip-hop sites. The one most notable was Hip Hop DX. And when I got that degree, I was like, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to exit this world and have a job handed to me. And nah, it didn't happen. None of that happened. I ended up working at Macy's. And then I worked for the trash company. And then I worked selling knives door to door. It'd been a long two years since Mecca picked up a pen. But when Andreas Hale, then at Hip Hop DX, sends an open email out searching for a writer, Mecca, for some reason, said yes, surprising even himself. Earlier shots had left him unfulfilled, but with Dre's encouragement, he evolved into a very popular and energized contributor, creating a column called Slap Boxing with Jesus. It was also through DX that Mecca, a black man from Long Beach, California, met a punk-dressing white kid from Las Vegas named Shake. The two bonded immediately over everything hip-hop and knew they had to carve a space for their shared taste, 2dopeboys.com. The first month we had maybe 2,000 hits total, and then the second month it was close to 10, and then the third month it was over 10, and then it just kept doubling and tripling every month. 2 Dope Boys, based off the song by Shake's favorite group Outkast, echoed their relationship and personas. Where Shake battled SK in the comments, it was Mecca who brokered the piece. On Smash was the brainchild of Hoff, an innovating new media specialist from Long Island, New York, whose deep love for music and serious understanding of the internet won him fans on message boards like Spot, as well as major labels like Def Jam, which gave him his first job. OnSmash.com existed in three phases. 
Initially, it was just forums, really. We wanted it to be a little bit of an underground, more edgier version than what was going on in the bigger forums at the time, like all hip hop and SOHH.com. A&Rs would always want me to get some of these early tastemakers and influencers that were popular on the forums and had a lot of respect to listen to some of the records and kind of give their points of view. The second phase was a platform to showcase unsigned artists. I realized there are some younger, new artists that are looking at the online and digital space as a way to break their records. The majority of songs and music that we were putting on on Smash at the time were more like mixtape tracks, and it was never really about commercial singles. It was more so about the stuff you couldn't find and more about unreleased or exclusive stuff or stuff that was kind of only on mixtapes or never really got out there. It was more about the new group of artists, which the era of like when True Life first came on the scene, Saigon was another big one. You know, when they had like Riot Squad with Sack Bundles and A-Team, stuff like that was gold to us. Most revolutionary, though, was the video phase, which started with Kanye West's creative partner, Plain Pat, looking for an outlet where he could post a video for Kanye's version of Rich Boy's major hit record, Throw some D's. This the remix. I mean, I ain't really in the Rams and all that. If I'm gonna play five, ten stacks with some D's, it's gonna be some different type of D's. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Kanye got stacks, y'all already know that. Louis that, Gucci this, just got a model chick. Just got a stripper chick. Some feel different. We couldn't officially use the label because we were like dealing with somebody's song, basically. It helped immensely that one of Pat's best friends and co-workers at Def Jam was Hoff. They were trying to upload the video to YouTube, but because of Content ID, which had just started at the time, they weren't able to upload it. That was kind of the genesis of thinking, hey, there should be some type of underground platform where we can share some of the videos that at the time you could only see on like a video music box or smack DVDs or stuff like that. After that, throw some D's, Kanye was just letting me leak whatever. You know what I mean? Because it was like, it went over so well. That shit definitely uh, was effective. You know, when we were thinking about the video player, it kind of hit me that, oh, wow, this great culture that was kind of this underground thing. And to me was the quote unquote real hip hop that maybe the commercial pop audience might not understand was very near and dear. And I felt like we had to create some type of way people could share their creativity through that. Missinfo.tv would be a round the clock effort so Info not only hired people from all over the world to blog part-time, but she brought aboard the younger brother she never had, another Korean-American just as in love with hip-hop journalism as she was, Mikey Fresh. When I met her was when she was like, you know what, the rap internet is happening, the rap blog thing is happening, I really want to make my brand and my site an official rap blog. Mikey, who started interning for Info while still a student at Pace University in New York, would regularly dip out of class whenever Minion needed anything. Assistance with an interview, an event to be covered, or an exclusive song to be posted. And me, I'm like, damn, I have a final, or I have an exam or something. 
you know, I was so into hip hop, man. I, I was, boom, I was out the door, no class. I, I was going like, all right, forget this. And that's why it took me five years to graduate college. Mikey was committed to the cause because he knew that Minya was more than just a figurehead. She put in that work. Info was the plug, man. She was an experienced journalist with a lot of contacts in the game. Her hustle and her drive and her fearlessness was crazy. Like, she was definitely not scared to go anywhere, not afraid to push anything or ask any questions or also to really just stand up for herself. You know what I mean? I, I think Asians specifically, we get stereotyped as like pushovers or people that can just be walked over. But here comes Info, this little Korean woman, and she's not going to take no shit from nobody. And I think a lot of people respected that. Each of these websites, along with the Jazz One, run by Splash, the mixtape veteran from Queens, an exclusive zone owned by the mysterious Mr. X, who was supposedly based overseas, brought their own weapons to the fight. Passion, taste, connections, guts, intelligence, reverence. Individually, these were the best of the best. We need a board. I felt like we're all cool. We all share things amongst each other. Let's form together and kind of pool our resources and make the most out of this, you know, rather than it be like an adversarial thing, which, you know, it was sometimes with other blogs. First, there was a private email thread where people would throw assists with exclusive songs or share tips on where to find the best quality leaks. SK recognized in this group a similar intellect and spirit as his friends from home. They bled this. As the trust and camaraderie grew and a shared vision emerged, SK came up with the name, the New Music Cartel. I kind of just didn't even speak to anybody else. I just kind of threw it out there, <laughs> and everybody kind of came along for the ride. In a short announcement to the world, SK put the corner offices on notice, referencing a line by Frank White, played by Christopher Walken in the film King of New York. SK said, nothing goes down unless we're involved. No exclusives, no singles, no nothing. A freestyle spit in the park, we want in. You guys got fat while everybody starved on the street. It's our turn. We wanted to be taken seriously, and I think individually, we were really strong in all our respective niches, or we each kind of had a piece to a puzzle that we quickly realized if we banded together, we would get a lot more recognition from the labels and artists and the industry as a whole. Where before, these seven blogs used all their energies to win credit over one another, they quickly found that working together raised all boats. I was like, all right, I got a record, and we're going to go in five minutes. Everybody get their posts. So everyone would go to the sites, draw up the posts, and we would press publish at the same time and boom. You don't do it for a credit, but there's definitely artists that owe their relevancy to Not Right and all the other NMC blogs. The artists that on Smash was really helpful to were Currency, Wiz, and thinking about, you know, Joel Ortiz, Freddie Gibbs. The first dose, like the world god of Action Bronson. You know, obviously Kid Cudi because of my close friend Pat and a bunch of artists through him as well. Around that time, right after we posted the Kanye West video and got all that acclaim, I'm coming home from work and my phone's blowing up. And finally I pick up this number that's been calling me 
and it was actually a publicist from Interscope saying, you don't know what I've done to just get your number in the past 12 hours, but 50 wants to talk to you and he wants to do an interview with you guys. And he was, you know, one of the biggest artists in the world at the time. And my first feeling once I got off the phone is, again, we better figure out how to do interviews. Here's Splash from thejazzone.com. So while I did not get as much traffic as everybody else, I still got the most exclusives uh, within New Music Hotel 7 websites. I got the most exclusives mainly because of my connection to the DJs, because DJs were scared to play songs and they kind of needed an outlet to say, quote unquote, nah, I got it off the internet. The New Music Cartel was leaking so many songs, they knew the labels would start to come after them. In order to get the heat off, they, well, just listen. We collectively, this cartel, had to come up with a DJ name that we could make up and just blame it on a no-name DJ name. And I got somebody to go in the booth and do a few drops. And then every time I got a new exclusive, I would put the drops over it so that no-name DJ could take the blame for it. So if a record label went to go look for it, they would know that that DJ is the person who leaked it. Not New Music Cartel, it's DJ Prestige. And that literally covered our ass on a lot of stuff. The first DJ Prestige exclusive that caught the attention of Splash was an unfinished collaboration by Drake and Big Sean that had leaked called Made. I need less friends, more bread. Less talk, more head. Used to ride escorts, now I get escorted. Do it. I'm just waiting on my cue, dog. No pledge. Says she like all girls. I turn that bitch co-ed. And neither one of them were big, but they were about to be big and the song wasn't finished. It had no chorus, and you can hear them talking in the background during the chorus, like, yo, how, how should we do this, or whatever it is, and you can hear them talking, and it was just unfinished. And then an independent artist would take it and then put himself in the middle, and then now it's independent artist featuring Drake and Big Sean. In the height of hip-hop blog culture, there was a dedication that was very near manic, literally 24 hours a day, we were communicating about new information that was coming out. Maybe it was a song, maybe it was like an image, maybe it was just gossip. There was definitely a dedication. There was also an accountability that I think I saw differently from other blogs. And I think as people became sort of independent bloggers and it was first or nothing, a lot of people didn't care about whether something was true. But all the New Music Cartel guys always really wore that on their sleeve, like that they were right. They always wanted to be right. Um, And not right in like the moral sense, but they wanted to be right, like they had the right information. Bloggers by nature were presumed to be solitary. Keyboard jockeys sitting in rooms lit only by a beige computer monitor. But the NMC, they were real people and the connections were genuine. At its peak, we were almost like familial. We would go out to dinner. Some of them who lived in Canada, like Nation and Illy, some of them would come down or we'd go up to Toronto and we'd link up. we laughed together. we cried together. We opened up together. It was a lot. It was almost therapeutic because it was so many like-minded men and women who were in that chat and we weren't just all talking about music. It might be one day we might be talking about cracking jokes and everything. It might be another day where somebody wants to talk about their relationship issues. These are guys that some of them I've never seen in person, but I still trusted them. You know what I mean? Like, it's such a unique thing that I am so thankful that I was a part of because 
it wasn't just a hybrid of two eras. It was unique to itself. We had like a email group that, I mean, maybe in my life, as I look back, like I'm on my deathbed and I look back at my different accomplishments, being added to that group thread, definitely on there. We became friends, like we became a family. So when you put all those together, how do you beat that? We were like, yo, we can actually put a monopoly on the game if we wanted to. And that's pretty much what we did. It's hard to overstate the power this small group of bloggers had. They had created platforms that could make or break new artists. They could text Joe Budden and Drake. They were at clubs with Puff and eating at Mr. Chow's with label heads like Joey Ie and Todd Moskowitz. Not only were the blogs beating the press, but we were all being featured by them. Vibe, Double XL, The Source, Complex, all dedicated photo shoots. This was the dawning of a new age, and these were the leaders of the new school. I mean, at that time, I wasn't even living in the city. I was living in Jersey. So I was back and forth, but the access was insane because at that time, they knew who we were. They knew what we represented. So they wanted us there talking about their parties or their experiences or their listening sessions. It was stupid, man. We just was like a, a pissy contest. In my apartment, you can ask my friends, like every single one of my friends has a Beats pill or the best Samsung speaker or JBL, like so much stuff. Yo, we're going to go throw money with Rick Ross type of trips. I'm Korean American and there were two times where I was asked to like either come speak at a music conference or be flown and take care of in Korea off music. And to me, that was huge and it was big to show my family like my parents are pretty traditional immigrant parents that moved to the States in the 70s from Seoul. So for them to see that this hip hop thing, this one thing that they once thought was just like some noise and violent and not good, also helped me like get back in touch with my culture and go, you know, work professionally and do consulting and do A&Ring for Korean music. It's a far stretch from blogging leading to that, but it definitely played a part in some of the stuff I'm doing now. Here's Joe Button. We were all cool. We were just a different cool. And I think that's kind of why we gravitated towards each other. I think y'all are cool. Nobody else probably thinks y'all are cool. <laughs> the word cool and what it means. But nah, the shit I think is flying cool. Y'all was cool. Menu was cool. Low was cool. I keep saying the same names because my memory's bad. But everybody was cool. I have a specific moment. It was, I think you guys were there. I think it was Angie's birthday. And Minya invited me. And she was like, you can only bring yourself. So I was like, all right, fine. But when I get there, it's like Jay's there, Kaiser's there, a whole bunch of people. And you know, that circle is tight. You know, that's a very, very, like they play spades together. It's like the breakfast club, a very, very tight knit group of people that came up together. And I think it was that moment for me where it's like, oh shit, I'm allowed in this circle. I'm allowed around these titans. The bloggers drank it up both liquor and adoration. But at the end of the day, it was all about obtaining and releasing new music. More often than not, a lot of the songs we got were straight from the label or somebody that worked at a label. To this day, people will consider us nothing more than online bootleggers or German hackers or whatever. But it's like, nah, like your, your mans at this label was sending us this music and telling us to post it. And then when we would post it and the label didn't want it to get out, then we'd look bad. But we never hacked, we never stole, we definitely never paid for anything. Everything that we put out was 
given to us, essentially. And it was all coordinated. I remember when, I hate referring to this album because it's the, the Nas N-Word album. And like throughout the day, the entire album leaked. The label was giving it to us track by track. So we just all coordinated like, okay, you do this at this hour, you do this at this hour, you do this. Yeah, the labels and the artists' peoples were giving us the music. The NMC's coordination and access made other blogs sit up a little more straight. Felton Brown ran Pardon Me Duke out of his office in the East Village. But I didn't really know what all these motherfuckers look like. And I'm like, yo, are these people like A&Rs at labels? Like, how they get into Because we got our stuff by, like, you know, torrents and things of that nature. But these dudes are clearly getting it from people that they fuck with. And that shit was absolutely crazy that they would get certain things. I think I got, like, one or two songs ever before anybody. And I felt like that was probably the best feelings in the fucking world. To get things before them. John Gotti watched with appreciation. So when they combined their forces and their audiences and the leverage that they had, you knew it was going to work. Each one of them already had very strong audiences that were sometimes independent of each other, but they also overlapped. So when you bring all those together, it's almost like they created a, a small record label in a sense, or they almost created like their own network, media network in an unofficial sense. Here's Karen Civil of KarenCivil.com. I always wanted to be a part of their clique. I've been different all my life. And I thought, okay, with this site, you know, maybe I'll be cool. Because I was cool with some of them, but not cool enough. So when they started New Music Cartel, you know, with every clique, it's only one girl. They had misinfo. I said, you know what? If I can't join them, I'm going to beat them to a certain extent. They would do these braggadocious things like song coming, song coming, this is about to leak. And they would give hints. So what I would do is, because I had a relationship with the talent, i say, hey, your song's about to leak, give it to me. This is Dimples, one of the editors at the smoking section. New music cartel were like the cool kids at school. And you're like, hey, but I play sports, I'm cool too. And they just kind of looked at you like, yeah, okay. SK promised it was our turn. And he was right. Bloggers had gone from invisible to essential. Summer 2008 would be one long party. But as the leaves began to turn, the world's economic engine, partly as a result of the bloated U.S. housing market, had suddenly, completely, and unsurprisingly fallen apart. Just when all of these businesses were starting to find a balance, music, print, technology, communications, everything took a major hit. There were huge job losses across the board. Seemingly overnight, magazines turned into pamphlets. Radio stations couldn't afford talent. MTV moved away from music videos since they couldn't compete with YouTube and chase the highs of 24-hour reality programming. Bloggers, on the other hand, were uniquely equipped to stay afloat. They worked from home, by themselves. They were cheap and efficient and could subsist on free finger food at industry events. The world had crashed around them, but as the dust settled, the blogs were just getting started. I'm just playing records, talking about shit with my friends, and listening to my favorite artists. I wouldn't think about lawyers. I wouldn't think about legal ramifications. I didn't give a fuck. It was fun. It was the wild, wild west. (laughs) We were out there gunslinging, throwing records out there, talking shit and having a good fucking time. That's what the blog era was for us. The 
Vlog Era is executive produced for Other Tone by Pharrell Williams, Moses Shoyola, and Scott Benner. Executive produced for It's The Real by Eric Rosenthal, Jeff Rosenthal, and Steve Carlos. Produced by Greg Mayo and Osmi Rollins. Written, researched, and hosted by Eric Rosenthal and Jeff Rosenthal. Original score by Greg Mayo. Edited by Greg Mayo. Story edited by Timhotep Aku. Fact-checked by Brandon Callender. This is the Blog Era.